Warning, the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch, contains adult content. Harry and others use profanity, adult language, and discuss adult topics, and so shall we. One more warning, this podcast may contain spoilers. I must stress this for this chapter and the entire podcast, so please proceed with extreme caution. After the bartender put down the drinks, Corvo threw back the shots like a man who's used to it. So, he said, what are you really going down there for? And why should I trust you the least bit? Bosch thought about it for a moment. Because I can give you Zorio. Shit. Bosch didn't say anything. He had to give Coro his due. Just let him run out his string. After he was done posturing, they could get down to business. Bosch thought at that moment that the one thing the movies and TV shows didn't get wrong or over-exaggerate was the jealousy and distrust that existed between local and federal cops. Once I always thought it was better, wiser, or more qualified. Usually the side that thought that was wrong. Hello, and welcome to the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch. I'm Philip Parker, a retired police detective with over 29 years of law enforcement experience. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please don't forget to rate us five stars or better. Please follow us on Twitter at the Thin Blue Line pod or our Facebook and Instagram pages, which are set up for our fans. Last time on the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch, we explored chapters 13 through 16 of The Black Ice, where Harry meets Sheehan and trade investigative information concerning Jimmy Capps, Wando number 67, and more. Sheehan confirms that Moore was under IED investigation concerning an alleged trafficking and or protection scheme of illicit narcotics on the boulevard. Harry begins investigating the fruit fly industry discovering that the fruit flies are transported over the border from Mexico in a special container that is not searched at the border. Bosch meets Teresa, who is very angry with him concerning the disclosure to the press of the sensitive information she provided him. Harry later then meets Rickard at the Hall of Justice in an attempt to again flip Kerwin. Bosch is horrified to find out that Rickard utilizes contacts inside the jail to place Kerwin in high power. High power is where the most dangerous criminal suspects are placed while waiting trial or shipped out to state prisons following guilty verdicts. Kerwin holds fast and tells Rickard to go to hell. Bosch makes Rickard drop all charges against Kerwin. After the charges are dropped, Bosch takes Kerwin to a hotel. Kerwin then tells Bosch that Dance is in the wind. Dance told Kerwin that his source of supply had dried up and that Dance was going to go south to try to develop a new connect. During this episode, we will be taking a deep dive into chapters 17 through 20 of The Black Ice. As always, there's a prerequisite spoiler alert. It's my intention to stay away from spoilers, but sometimes shit happens, so proceed with extreme caution. And now, the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch.
Let's open up the murder book and turn the page to the chronological record so that we can do an investigative summary of the information gathered thus far in this chapter. Per that phone conversation, Harry meets Kovo, the DEA agent who was working with Moore. Harry tells Kovo he plans to go to Mexico. Kovo believes this is a big mistake and warns Harry he shouldn't trust the local cops. Harry tells Kovo everything he has, including the theory that Zareo is using a viral breed to transport drugs into the United States. Kovo tells Harry that a viral breed is directly across from Zareo's ranch. Kovo also says that Zareo usually is very visible, but has not been seen at the ranch for a couple of weeks. Kovo also informs Bosch that Zareo is something like a folk hero in Mexicali and is also known as the Pope. Kova also informs Bosch that the barrio Zarel was from utilizes a moniker of a devil with a halo. Bosch puts together that this is the same tattoo that is on Moore's arm. Harry decides to stop by Moore's apartment, feeling the need to get some type of inspiration. While at the apartment, Harry locates a number of old photos cataloging Moore's life from a little boy until he married Sylvia. Sylvia arrives at the apartment to acquire Moore's dress blues to be buried in. Sylvia tells Harry that he grew up in Calexico and Mexicali, and that Moore was obsessed with something that happened to him in his childhood. In a moment of need, hunger, and loneliness, Bosch and Sylvia make love on Moore's unmade bed. En route to Mexico, Harry reflects on the death of his mother, growing up in different youth shelters, and the one time he met his father, who was a famous trial attorney. Bosch arrives in Calexico and takes the spare gun to the local cops to sign in to protect himself should he need to use his gun while he is in Mexico. Bosch goes to the hotel he plans to stay, planning to check in and then go to Mexicali. However, Bosch is given a list of messages waiting for him from Pounds and Irving. Bosch calls and speaks to Edgar, who informs him that Porter is dead and that Porter's body was found in a landfill. Edgar also tells Bosch that Porter was killed at a downtown business and dumped inside a dumpster before being found in the landfill. Bosch realizes that Porter must have been killed while he was getting coffee. Bosch also realizes that when the police interview the bartender, the man will remember him and his altercation with Porter. When Bosch arrives in Mexicali, Bosch connects with investigator Aguilar who was the cop who reported Wando 67 missing. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's lift up the yellow tape and examine the clues. For the defining theme for chapter 17 through 20 is... Life can only be understood backwards, but must be lived forwards. Hello, and welcome back to the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch. And so before we start this episode, I'm going to have to warn listeners that this is going to be maybe a little bit longer than normal. 
And the reason it's going to be longer is because there's so much that Michael puts in these four chapters. And I don't, I think it would do a disjustice to you and Michael, if not to point out what I think is very important and integral to the whole Harry Bosch ecosystem. We pick up this uh, chapter 17 with Harry meeting Koval, the uh, DEA agent at the bar. And again, just to play off of how important things are and, and how some things I said in the last podcast or episodes, which, which is true. No, quote, unquote, Koval says, I checked you out. And just like I told you before, what I was told by my um, father and, and, and countless other old timers was your name goes through the door before you do. So here again, Michael gives you insight of how cops work, uh, how cops work. And so Koval checked, Koval checked him out. And again, that's, 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 that's just like I said, your name goes through the door before you do. So people call around before they think about calling you or, or interacting with you. So what you do now sets you up for future investigations or future interactions with other law enforcement people. You know, I, I, I love, you know, you feel this tension building between Kovo and Bosch and Harry. And I love to find out, you know, because Harry's response to that was, yeah, well, I haven't decided if search is a breath mint or candy. <laughs> Again, you know, and that, that levity, but tells you getting so much about Harry. I like how Michael threw that, threw that little jab back in it because, you know, Harry might have a, a reputation, but he also is going to still be Harry and be a smart ass. And I kind of like that. And you know, Michael picked up something and I want to, I think I really want to expand on what he said. Uh, Michael offered a book, you know, he's talking about Colvo and his being, you know, a little bravado and just being macho. Again, he says from the book, most DA agents Bosch knew or had worked with had this macho swagger about them. You know, that's not just reserved for DEA agents. That's actually narcotic investigators. And you have to be that, have that bravado, that strength, that sense of invulnerability that you, to do your job. Because the type of work that narcotic people do, they put themselves in the line all the time with dangerous people. Because going to jail for narcotics and is some again is it's, it's could be very significant. So most uh, narcotic agents or officers, you got to have a swagger about you. And again, any cop that I that, that that's listening to this podcast, they know a narcotic investigator who has that swagger about them. You know, it, 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 you have to do that. To, you have to have that. You have to have a self belief in yourself to be a good investigator when it comes to narcotics. You know. And again, I'm, set, I'm setting this up a little bit because not too many other books Michael talk about narcotic work. But, you know, being a narcotic investigator, it's kind of, it reminds me of if, when, you go, when you go to the circus and you have these you know, guys who juggle with a unicycle at the same time. Well, that's kind of how uh, narcotic work is. You're always juggling so many aspects of the investigation while riding a unicycle around. and you know, um, having to report to your supervisors on the, the 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 state and nature of your narcotic investigation. So, 
I, I just wanted to point this point out, this, this portion out, because not too many other books do Michael really get into the, the world of narcotic investigators. And, you know, get, again, from the book, um, Michael does a great job because he, he does it. He says, you know, the, the enmity that exists between the feds and the state and locals is true. And he actually, he actually sums it up really well. You know, again, from the book, one of the things that movies and TVs really didn't over-exaggerate was the relationships of jealousy and distrust that existed between local and federal cops. One side always thought they were better, smarter, or more qualified. That's the key word, more qualified. Usually that side was the one who was wrong. And see, each level have a role in an investigation. And once you think that you're better than someone else's role, then you lo- you lost. And I had encountered this on both sides. And the guys, uh, the guys who can work with federal, state, and local people without putting up this barrier are so much better investigators. Because everyone brings something to the table. No one knows it all. I worked for 29 years, and I can honestly say I almost learned something if not on a daily, on a weekly basis. And the day you stop learning, and I learned it from everybody. I learned it from the little sheriff and the little two-gallon, two, two uh, uh, two-person um, uh, department to the feds, you know, with the big, you know, the big FBI, with the big, you know, um, and, uh, worldwide apparatus. So you always have something to learn from somebody. But I have been with uh, local and federal cops who think that they are better. And the key word I like here more qualified than the other. And those guys you want to stay away from because guess what? They're going to sum you up. And if they can sum up someone and just put a rubber stamp on or just tag someone with a label, then you want to kind of stay away from that type of uh, person anyway. And you know, <laughs> again, the uh, I like the whole, um, this conversation, this dance that Kovo and Michael, excuse me, that Kovo and Harry does at the bar, you know, again, for the book, he says, uh, before we get into it, I have one question. You know, Harry says, who are you, man? I mean, you're up here in L.A. Why, aren't you, why are you the one in Morris Files? How come you're the expert on Zarel? And Kovo comes back over time. But, well, that's about 10 questions. And again. It, you, I, I love the, the Michael. I love the levity he throws in a, a, a tense situation, and everyone's trying to break the ice, get a feel for everybody. Again, it's just something I picked up on. I thought it was kind of it was a, it was a lot of fun. And you know, Kovo here, and again, I, I didn't say it last episode, but it, it rung true here because Kovo kind of admonished Harry because he asked him, "Hey, have you told anyone else about this investigation?" And Harry said, well, I made inquiries. He's like, well, who? And he said, well, you know, Captain Grenia. And he warned him. He's like, oh, dude, you know, don't trust anybody. Don't trust, especially the locals, especially in, in Mexico. So, but I, again, just my instincts right off the bat. It, but you got to understand what well, Harry is looking at it in a different light than, and than what most narcotic guys do. But, you know, Harry tells um pretty much gave his investigation or where the target of investigation was going to Grinya. You don't know who the Captain Grinya is, so Kova kind of admonishes him a little bit here. 
But you know, Harry then does something great because I like Harry then comes back over top and says again from the book, he says, he said, at least I'm not the one who walked into the place and asked to set up a weather station, you know. <laughs> and again, one of the things that uh, Michael does and a lot of people and investigators do at their peril. And it's again, from the book, Koval says, one thing you do know, or one thing we do know is that Zareel is one smart fucker. If you think that drug dealers are dumb, again, as an investigator, you are, you are doomed to fail. These guys think of ways to put narcotics in the most obscure locations. They move money and move product and they interact with people in a ruthless, but a sometimes very smart way. And if you think that you're smarter, better, faster than the narcotic guys or the, the narcotic traffickers, then as a criminal investigator, you will, you won't be successful. Again, so of course we, we catch dumb guys all the time. I'm not saying every, every narcotic guys is a brilliant Einstein, but at least you go in arm if, if, with the thought that this guy is smart. And you act as though he's smart, and then you're better prepared when it comes to your investigations and the success for taking down an organization. And you know, after the you know the back and forth and the you know the zings at each other, Harry and Kovo get down to trading information about the investigations. Kovo tells no, Bosch tells him what he has. Then Kovo comes back on the other end, and you know, goes back to what I was saying last episode. You tell me, I tell you. One of the things that Michael has done a good job. He called it the trampoline, and and he really explains what that means. But uh, you have and that's really true. You have narcotic narcotic traffickers who see the future of narcotics and. They then try to get in, in, get in front of it so then they can exploit it later. And again, I think Michael did a really good job. Whoever his consultant or if he, however he found that information out back in 1992, he did a really good job on that. I mean, you know, I've, I know longtime traffickers who, again, started marijuana and then progressed like they kept when cocaine was, was the big thing and then uh, moved on to more exotic and more expensive narcotics. And at the end of this, this interaction, Bosch and Kovo make a gentleman's agreement. You know, um, Bosch gave Kovo this information. Kovo then, you know, gives Bosch information. And Bosch says to him, hey, but tell your boy, um, don't move without me being there. I mean, because basically I, I've given you um, Zareel's, um ranch on a platter. You know, this Envirobree whole connection, I, give it, I gave it to him on a platter. And back then, it's, it's called a gentleman's agreement. And if I shook your hand and we agreed that we would do the investigation A, B, C, and D, that's all it took. But nowadays, those days are gone. Ladies and gentlemen, it's sad to say those days are gone. Now you're stuck with, well, I got to get my supervisor, my supervisor's permission. And then you got to have a meeting with their supervisors. And then that takes about two weeks. And then by that time, you know, well, that's not what I understood about the, uh, the investigation. And then, you know, this whole gentleman's agreement is gone. I mean, gone are the days when I looked at you in your eyes and I shook your hand and said, okay, this is the course of action we're going to go with. 
with. And I, and that's what we did. And if my supervisors pushed back on me, say, well, why did you agree to that? I'm like, because I'm the one on the street working it. I'm on the street, the one developing relationships with other federal, state, and local people. And this is what I need to do to get the job done. Now, if I don't get the job done, hold me responsible. But if you want me to get the job done, lay off me, set back a little bit, and let me do my job. And you know, the next couple of chapters really set up who Michael is and how we, you get, you know, his first book, I mean, again, I wasn't back, I, I, I read his books kind of after maybe, I started maybe in 1996, 97-ish, I think I started reading his books. But, you know, the first book, he got it. It was really popular. The second book got to be the harder book, you know, to follow up on. Again, that's a theory. But Michael puts a lot into the character development, the foreshadowing, the breadcrumbs of who who Bosch is, and then sets up for future, you know, 30-some-odd books later on. And so he really, Michael really sets a high bar in the wonderful storytelling when it comes to the insights of, of Harry. And, you know, one of the things, you know, here we go. Um, Bosch justifies breaking into Moore's apartment. And he you know, talks about he cares for some reason. He doesn't know why he cares, but he cares for some reason. And when he gets in there, he finds, you know, he goes through the whole, whole place and he finds these pictures of, of, that Moore had kept. And again, Harry can relate because, you know, the, the, the Moore's place is this very sparse, very uh, antiseptic place where it doesn't look like anyone lived there. But what is there was this paper bag with these photos in it. And Michael can, excuse me, Harry can, uh, can relate because he pretty much, he says, I have the same thing. And the photos are like reliving a story. You have to touch it. You got to feel it. And, you know, you really start getting into some backstory. And I like to use the word backstory. Again, as a criminal investigator, I didn't just investigate the crime at hand. I wanted to know what was the backstory and what was important, what made this person tick. <laughs> but again, I, you know, someone, you know, said, you know, you give people sugar first. So then you, you know, you hit them with the truth. What are the things that I'm not sure who, okay, ladies and gentlemen, the TV and movies do a bad job. No, we don't, you know, Michael finds, excuse me, Harry finds some sugar in Moore's house. And, you know, he's affiliated with narcotics, blah, blah, blah. Hey, what's in the sugar? We did not, at least I didn't. And I was an investigator, a narcotic investigator back then. I was toward, you know, we had test kits. And if I thought that somebody, something contained illicit narcotics, I put in a test kit. I had a heroin, a cocaine, and a, a, and a marijuana test kit, you know, to, taste the, to test the basic things of what I thought it was. And the fact that Harry, quote unquote, tested it, yeah, that, that didn't happen. Well, it shouldn't have happened because as a narcotic investigator, I know what these, these guys, what we call cut the, the, the drugs with. And the, the, they, they cut drugs with some serious bad stuff that, you know, that would kill people because they really don't care, especially some, especially drugs, heroin. It sounds sick and it's wrong, but if you were a heroin dealer and someone died by using a heroin addict died by using your product, that got 
more play on the street and everyone won that particular package. You know, uh, Insight, most heroin dealers had back then color-coded their product by the bag or some type of thing that um, identified that's Phil's heroin, and I'm only looking for, like, one was Orange Crush. I remember Orange Crush. Orange Crush was coming, you know, the heroin came in these little dime bags, and it was orange, bright orange. And it was called Orange Crush. And when someone died, no, the heroin addict did not want nothing else but the Orange Crush. I know that sounds sad, but so I digress. This is why you did not test, quote, unquote, with tasting the damn <laughs> The drugs, because you never know what the hell was in there. So, uh, yeah, I don't know anyone who did it that way. Again, my my experience starts in you know again I you know in uh, in the late eighties, early nineties. So, but I was always taught take some fucking test kits with you, Phil. And if you see some drugs, you want to test what it is. You test this called a field test for a reason. And you know, what one of the things that Michael. Did cops are superstitious by nature? We are. We are so stupid. I got so many superstitious things about me that drove my family crazy, but other cops got it. And one of the things that Michael gets true is the keeping your dress blues. And again, back then, um, once you became a detective, you had no reason to keep your dress blues on. Your dress blues were for ceremonial purposes. And so, but if, because I'm especially a narcotic, if you were a detective and promoted to a detective, whenever you have ceremonial uh, events, you wore a suit and tie and you wore you know, your, your, your badge or your placard on the outside of your, in the little outside part of your coat. Um, so there was really no need to keep your dress blues only to be buried in. And, you know, it, it, Mike was right. I mean, I remember um, back then I got rid of my dress blues when I became on, when I came on, um, after I got to promote it, I got rid of my dress blues. Now, subsequent later on, some of that, that little bit of suspicious died away and, you know, um, people started keeping their dress blues a little bit more, but back then he's absolutely right. You got rid of your dress blues. I'd like to take a quick break here and get into the question of the day. And it was concerning chapter 18. And they, the question actually went something to the effect uh, Harry and Sylvia made love on Cholesterol Moore's unmade bed. Do you have a problem with this? And the two choices were uh, no, both were in need, or yes, bury the man first. And so 76% of you said uh, no, they were both people in need. Ah. I'm going to have to go with the 24% and say we could have buried the guy first. And again, this, let me explain myself. There's nothing wrong with them, them as in Harry and Sylvia making love and, you know, having a relationship. That's not what I'm saying. Maybe it's me being a cop and me being superstitious, kind of like walking on another man's grave. I mean, the guy's not even buried yet. So again, but again, as human beings, Michael did a great job here talking about the loneliness that both Bosch and Sylvia felt. And right now, it appears to me as that they were feeling this, fulfilling this loneliness, you know, filling this loneliness up with one another. So, 
but I'm just that guy. Uh, so I'm going to have to go with the minority on this and say the 24% of 24% saying, hey, could we bury the guy first? And also while we're taking this break, I really, 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 really want to thank everyone. The subscriptions to the podcast are growing leaps and bounds. The interaction on the website is uh, is, is high. And it, I know it's, be, it's, it's, well, it's only because of you guys. It's only because of you guys. And thank you so much for being patient with me. As you can tell, as I promised when I first started this, um, I listened, actually, I went back and listened to some of the old tapes and oh my gosh. And so, and they say you shouldn't do that, but I'm, I'm a, I'm a believer. How can I get better if I don't listen to what I did in the back in the past? So I think I'm better than what I was back then, but God knows I know I have a lot of growing to do and I'm still growing. And for you guys to be patient with me as we develop, and I say we develop this thing and keep it going and keep it elevating. I'm so appreciative. So again, Thank you so much. Uh, keep going out there with your Google uh, Play, uh, Apple Podcast, Stitcher, uh, Spotify. And like I keep saying, um, share us. You know, if you like this thing, if you if you don't mind sharing us with uh, friends and family and telling them, um, hey, you know, check this podcast out. I really appreciate it. And keep the comments coming. Good, bad, or indifferent. I don't care. The fact of the matter that what you tell me, I take in, and I, it only is going to make this podcast better. So, again, thank you, thank you, thank you. And so, that being said, back to uh, Hitting Streets. And, you know, one of the things that I want, listeners, I want you to understand when this part of the book I hope you picked up on what Bosch meant when he kept saying, you fucked up, Kyle, when he came to Sylvia. And in this, as he's going through Moore's apartment and looking at Moore's life, he says a number of times, you fucked up, um, Kyle, or how could you fuck this up, Kyle, or how could you leave this, Kyle, again, um, in relating to Sylvia. What he means is to have Sylvia in this 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 book is the epitome of a cop's wife and i feel blessed that i have it you know been married 20 uh, oof, 20 plus years <laughs> oh oh i'm in trouble and because what he means by that you have brains beauty and the understanding that some things i can't tell you you got to be, and I said it before, and I, matter of fact, I, uh, Jackie and I talked about it, you know, my, especially back in the pager days, you know, my pager would go off and I had a number of female informants and I would have to go two o'clock in the morning. I got to rock and roll. You got to go when the action is, or, you know, again, Jackie's a, a, um, a female cop. So, you know, you can hear a female voice and to be able, it was a delicate balance. You had to build the trust. And for her, her as a Sylvia and Kyle, they've been married. Bosch don't understand. How could you fuck that up? I mean, she, I guess I said, she, she's smart. She's, she, she's beautiful. And the fact that she can understand a cop's life and know when to ask questions and when not to ask questions. And again, not to ask questions. I'm not telling you something because I'm keeping something from you. I'm not, I'm telling you something to keep you safe that you can't, that you don't, that you don't. That you can't know. 
But you got to trust me that I would be doing whatever I'm doing is not at the detriment of our relationship. And that's so that's what he meant by Cal, you fucked up. At least that's how I took it. And, you know, one of the things I, I like about Sylvia, again, was, you know, well, OK, so Bosch is going through the home. Sylvia comes in and when she comes as, as, they're, as they're talking. um about the dress blues and the whole, their, their relationship, you know, Sylvia talks about how Chastain asked her some questions about what was going on with, with Kyle and the whole nine yards. And again, I said it before, that's why she was by everyone counts person is she says it, you know, even in death that she's still a cop's wife. She still takes that creed to heart there's certain things that she won't do and or lines she won't cross. And again, that's what Harry means by Kyle, you fucked up. And I'll tell you right now, any law enforcement person listening to me right now, if you find and hang, have a person like that, you grab them, hold on tight and don't let go because it is a rare beauty to have something like that and hold on to it and don't let go. And you know, one of the things that, you know, again, to bring back, again, Michael makes you think. Remember I said Michael loves, Michael makes you think. And one of the things Michael did here, uh, remember back in the uh, early chapters when Bosch met with Rickard and he, he was talking about, you know, what ID came in and they took the typewriter. Again, he said, uh, you know, the only working typewriter in the whole unit. And then Chastain asked um, Sylvia about the typewriter again. It's so it's something with that typewriter. And again, I told you back then how important, you know, what we used to do with typewriters and, and how, how vital they could be towards your investigation. Again, Michael, don't, don't, don't sleep on it because Michael sucker punches you and you, you know, you got to stay on your toes when you're reading his books. And, you know, we get a sense of that more left Sylvia. I mean, I didn't pick up on that Sylvia left him. Something was going on in Kyle Moore's life that he left Sylvia. We'll get to it later on. Um, I I believe Michael explains it a little bit later on. But here, right now, as we're in these particular four chapters, you're like, what the hell that was going on in Kyle's life that he had to leave Sylvia? Because, you know, again, she seems to be the, the, the gold standard when it comes to a law enforcement, a significant other. And, you know, Sylvia and Michael, excuse me, uh, Sylvia and Harry are talking about her interactions with Chastain and Irving. And one of the things Irving throws into her face is pretty much, look, you you better go along and get along if you want to receive more benefits. And, you know, you know, no one is black or white. No, no, we we are complicated individuals, but the mere fact that Irving throws vaguely, though, we, okay, we got Irving throwing his muscle around with Teresa, um, Teresa Corzon. We have him now flexing up on Sylvia and, you know, the, the, uh, Moore's benefits. He tries to control everything and he's trying to be that junkyard dog still doing his thing. But God damn, you know, it, it shows you the depths of which Irving will go to control information. You know, nothing's off, nothing's off limits, you know, telling a a bereaved wife, go along, get along so you can get the guy's bunny. That's, that's kind of fucked up. And, you know, towards again, as Bosch and Sylvia talking, he tells her everything. He tells Sylvia about Jimmy Capps, Wando 67, 
Moor and Mexicali. And no, he does it because she's proven to be a cop's wife. She knows the information he just gave her has to stay within her. She can't use that information. But already, Harry trusts Sylvia enough to give her this, 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 all this information. And that's just a testament to what I was saying just a little while ago, is that Sylvia is the gold standard when it comes to a police officer's wife or a significant other. And Harry proves it by telling her all this information, all this information, excuse me, about um, all these different bodies that got dropped interacting with her, um, uh, interacting with her ex-husband. And, you know, Harry now answers the question why he cares. And he cares about Moore's life because he thinks it was Moore's attempt to cross back over. Um, evidently he was doing something wrong. He was doing something illicit. And Harry asked him, can you put together a file or give me some information about this, the black ice? And so Harry tells her, you know, everyone wants to sweep this under the rug. I can't. Harry said, like, again, everyone wants to sweep this under the rug, but I can't. And Harry feels some sense of, I had a small part or some part of your husband or ex-husband being killed. So I care. Again, so this chapter sets up a lot. Harry has this uh, conversation with Sylvia. And, you know, she pretty much says uh, to him, uh, Harry, are you um, hung up on the past also? You know, referring to how she said Kyle was always talking about the past, hung up on the past. And, you know, she, you know, she throws out that line, you know, st- uh, studying the past, we learn our future. You know, that, that's a lot. And, she, you know, again, she getting further, further, you know, digs at Harry. Well, maybe it wasn't a dig, but she also says to Harry, you know, you seem to be a man still studying. And then, you know, I'm an eyes guy. And I, I think I said that a couple of podcasts ago, a couple of episodes ago. Her eyes seems to look into him. You know, they were eyes of great knowledge. And he realized for all his desires the other night, she wasn't the one who needed to be held or healed of pain. In fact, she was the healer. And then again, Michael, uh, excuse me, Harry used that, that line, you know, how could Kyle run from this? Again, th- th- this is a rare gem to have in a police officer. Well, not j- I wouldn't, hell, not just a police officer's life, but in anyone's life who you can have a partner who can understand you. And, you know, I think I, just to say it again, I, 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 I want to bet somebody a dollar. I bet one day when we get a chance to ask Michael, is he one of those, does he have one of those alias rom- romance novelists out there? I bet he, he's written some romance novels because he writes some really steamy stuff here, some really good stuff here. And again, from the book, they stared at each other. Then she came closer and brought her mouth to his. Her hand came to his neck and pulled him into the, to the kiss. She held him and pressed herself against him in a way that revealed her need. He saw her eyes were closed, and now in that moment, Bosch realized that she was reflection of a mirror of the hunger and loneliness. <laughs> I'm not laughing. Uh, it's me being uncomfortable, so that's why I'm, I'm, you know, this is well without, this is well out of my range. So I, I laughed to relieve some tension, but I honestly believe, well, one, that's a tender, that's a tender moment. Of course, it's a tender moment. And it shows, uh, again, you know, the hunger and loneliness of both of these human beings. 
But the manner in which he wrote it, and I, I read it that way, because that's how I look at it, or as I, I see it, is I, I bet a dollar that Michael has an alias out there somewhere where he wrote romance novels. You know, and getting this, this chapter, these chapters set up so many things about who Michael, excuse me, who Harry is. Again, from the book, all his life he believed that he was slumming towards something good that there was meaning in the youth shelters in the foster homes, the army, Vietnam's, and now the department. He always carried the feeling that he was struggling towards some kind of resolution and knowledge of purpose, that there was something good in him or about him. It was the waiting that was so hard, the waiting that often left him um, hollow feeling in his soul. And he believed people could see this, that they knew when they looked at him, that he was empty. He learned to feel this hollowness, with isolation and work, and sometimes drink and sound of jazz saxophone, but never people. He'd never let anyone in all the way. That is very, that paragraph, and I'm sorry I butchered, butchered it up, um, but that paragraph is really sums up a lot about who Harry is. Again, Michael gives us this, not just a glimpse now, really personal view of who Harry is, this lonely guy um, out here struggling to um, find his way. And for him to say he's never, you know, never let anyone in all the way, whew, uh, that, that, that's a long, empty, lonely life. So again, to bring some nostalgia back here, you know, Harry, after him and Sylvia um, make love that night, they, um, Harry goes back to his home. He getting prepared to go to Mexico and he leaves a message on his answer machine. And again, I chuckle because, um, I was the guy I had that knob that when you, you turn the, you turn the answer machine to record and then you let go and you turn it to away and all that kind of stuff. And so that, that, that brought a smile back to my face when um, Michael uh, uh, gave us this glimpse of Harry leaving a message on his answer machine. And as Harry's driving, one of the things that um, Harry does when he's driving to Mexico, and I'm, I'm a big road guy. I love riding the road. I could, you, you could put me on, a, one of the great things about my wife and I is that I'm the driver, she's the passenger. And we both, we're both happy with that arrangement. I can drive for hours on end because you get, that's to me. And as Michael says, and Harry says in this particular portion of the book, you know, that's some of his best times. You know, he's thinking, you know, you're away from everyone else and you get a sense of calm and the road, you know, the repetitiveness of the sounds of the tires. And then you can really zone out everything else and then focus in on certain aspects of what you're working on. So here, Michael um, gives us an inside glimpse of Harry's life before he became a cop. And, and, you know, we actually get some backstory, again, some more foreshadowing for things to come. And so, though, Michael describes Bosch's interaction with his father, which is very, very sad. And now we start to see what motivates Bosch from, again, his mother found in the back alley, an unsolved murder, to him growing up, with, growing up without a father. Well, I like, again, from the book, his half-brother was now a top defense attorney, and Harry was a cop. There was a strange congruence that Bosch found acceptable. They had never spoken and probably would never. <laughs> Again, now, no spoilers, but, you know, you, if you're a Harry Bosch fan and you've already been in the Harry Bosch world, you know that's not true. 
And I'm not going to go no further than that. But again, the breadcrumbs. Look, this is the second book. And another thing that I thought was really important with this interaction and that Bosch is, um, that, excuse me, that Michael is telling us about how Harry and who Harry's makeup is. You know, and then we get some more breadcrumbs or foreshadowing concerning Harry. And again, from the book, the summer after he had talked to his father, Bosch had picked up the book by Hess. He was curious about what the old man had meant. He found it in the second book he read, Harry Holler, was a character in it, a disillusioned loner, a man, no real identity. Harry Holler was the Steppenwolf. That August, Bosch joined the cops. Like, whoa, okay. I mean, it, it took me, like, I, I had to read that over. So then I did some research on the Steppenwolf, and I, I read a little bit, some back backstory about him. This guy is Harry. And so that's why you guys go to the um, website. I put a link in the website about Hess, and I think it's really interesting so you can get, again, to get some good character development about who Harry is. So when after Harry arrives at the border, again, never assume just because people are in certain roles that they're not smart. And I love the, <laughs> the interaction with the guy. He's checking in his weapon, his, uh, his uh, throwaway gun. He's, um, he's checking it in. And the guy, you know, says, "Woo, boy, who gave you a name like that? You know, and Harry says, well, just pronounce me Harry. He said, no, I can spell it. I mean, I, I can, you know, it rhymes with uh, anonymous. But I love, he says, look at here, you know, we got a lefty checking in a right-handed gun. <laughs> Again, don't underestimate people. And we see that this guy, he's, he's been doing this for a while. He knows the routine. He knows that most cops check in, uh, checking the weapon in because they got the real weapon they're going to carry across the border. And I thought that was really good. Again, never let your guard down when it comes to people and their intelligence. So after Bosch crossed the border and he goes to the hotel where he planned on checking in, uh, he gets some messages. Um, he gets uh, two messages from Pounds and one from, from um, Irving. And so he doesn't call, of course, he calls the Hollywood, you know, the desk and see what the hell is going on before he calls those two guys. And we get... A classic. Okay, so I say I'm gonna stay away from spoilers, and I'm gonna have to be spoiler here because it's just so iconic of who Jerry Edgar is. You know, he calls him. He goes, "Harry, where you at?" <laughs> so the spoiler is that's Jed's tagline. He says that throughout their interactions in the books. And I love that line. No, Jerry, you know, Jed, you know, uh, Baj, where you at? <laughs> that's, that's classic. And so then Jed, you know, tells Bosch about how Porter uh, was found dead in a landfill. Remember, he kind of puts two and two together. He, he is, and Harry puts two and two together. The Hispanic guy who with the teardrops who walked into the bar when he was, he was roughing up Porter a little bit to tell him about his interaction with Moore and slowing down the investigation of Wando 67. And he's like, shit, that was the guy. That, that had to be the guy. And because now we comes to find out Porter didn't run away from him. And remember, the, the, the dumpster was pushed in front of the door. And now Porter's found in landfill. And they do some investigative checks. You know, um, they as in Jed and RHD and the whole nine yards. Everyone 
comes to find out that the dumpster was registered to a business downtown. And so you's like, oh shit, here we go. So now the, the, the as Harry said in the book, he had no choice but to keep going forward because uh soon as they find out that Harry roughed up Porter, and remember, Harry has Porter gun. Harry has Porter's gun. And I, I was at this point in the book, I'm like, how the hell, how the fuck is Harry going to get out of this? Because he has a witness that he, be, even Jay said, well, it looks like he was roughed up pretty badly because it looked like his nose was broken. <laughs> well, Bosch is the one that broke it. <laughs> so now he was the one who killed him. You know, the, the broken nose didn't kill him, but it sure doesn't look good that, you know, remember that the, 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 the bartender has no problem. We're going to dime out Harry and, and say, yeah, this, this other cop came in here and beat him up in, in the whole nine yards. So you think, oh, shit, how the hell is Harry going to get out of this? And, you know, this makes me always think that, like I was saying before, you can't just um, skim pages with, uh, with Michael. Because every you never know when he's going to drop these breadcrumbs. And he did it right here. You know, he did it right here. You just thought it was going to be some interaction between him um, um, him and Porter. Again, this guy comes in the bar. He describes the, all the different people in the bar. And now I'm coming to find out that he probably he is in uh, that guy who came in the bar is the one who killed Porter. At least you would think so. And, you know, Edgar proves why I said that a couple of uh, back in the Black Echo why Edgar, on a number of different times, was my uh, um, everyone counts person. Because even now, you know, as Bashi, you know, he, he cl uh, classified Edgar as his on-again, off-again partner, is after he goes to all this, he says, well, watch your back. And then, well, no, back up. I'm sorry. He tells, Harry tells Edgar, hey, don't tell Pounds and them that you talk to me. And Edgar says, you want to play like that? And he goes, yeah. Just think about that. You know, Edgar has no problem fighting the power. He has no problem fighting the system, but he does it in his own way. And again, that's just what I was telling you in the Black Echo. And here we see it again. You know, Harry is that guy, uh, excuse me, Harry. Edgar is that guy who is pivotal to Harry's life when it comes to these, these, at least these two books. And, you know, when he tells him, well, you watch your back out there. And this is why I love that guy. This is why I love uh, Edgar. And lastly, we, we ended this chapter with Harry meeting, finally meeting investigator Aguilar. You know, he, he, he gets to the, um, to, to the, to the Mexican police department. He's introduced to Grania, and he can see already that, that Captain Grania glazed over or glossed over the fact that Wando wasn't the guy involved with uh, Envirobreed because you know, he says, well, I took his name there and I asked around about him and they said they had no such person. And he said, well, how do you how do they know when we haven't identified the body right then and there just shows you really, really quickly the gl you know, a glimpse of what Harry's going to be up against while he is in Mexico.
So my everyone counts or no one counts person in chapter 17 through 20 is Sylvia Moore. And I, I probably telegraphed it was Sylvia. I know I did, but Sylvia again show the true in my book the true testament of a significant spouse or significant other excuse me of a law enforcement personnel and even in this chapter we get into the depths of why i i was i like sylvia to be the everyone counts or no one counts person in these uh, four chapters because let's remember she says a couple of things to harry that i that we get a little bit more backstory that Ch- Chastain came at her. Everyone thinks that uh, she's the one who wrote the letter to get the whole ID ball rolling on um, on, on Kalesico Moore, and she still pushed back, even though they they're divorced and they're uh, they're uh, they're as in Sylvia and Kalesico's uh, marriage have broken up. She still is a cop's wife, true to herself and true to the blue. That she's not going to betray the blue, and like I said before, I I'm not saying for her to but when I say betray, and again let me understand I'm not saying that she's hiding some deep dark murder or some crime of violence. The fact of the matter is she didn't take the opportunity that most of us would have took to jab at the guy or the female who broke their heart and caused their relationship not to be uh, what it was. That would have been a prime an op- opportune moment to do, it, but she wouldn't do it. And the fact that she uh, even pushed back on the junkyard dog to a certain extent, like, oh, if you want this pension, uh, you're going to have to go along to get along. And she kind of like, like, that's really important to me. I love Sylvia Moore's character. And, well, I told you before, I liked it before, but it really showed why I love Sylvia's character in um, these four chapters. So, again, my everyone counts or no one counts um, person and chapters 17 through 20 is Sylvia Moore. Concludes this episode of the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch, chapters 17 through 20. And at the beginning of this podcast, I thought it was going to be much longer than um, what it turned out to be. So, but I hope I didn't rush it. I don't think I did rush it because there was a lot of interesting points and again, character developments that we're going to always keep going, coming back to. But uh, thank you for hanging in there with me and thanks for your patronage. I really appreciate it. If you can continue to go to Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast, and to remember to continue to rate me five stars or better. And uh, if you can possibly leave comments, uh, those comments are valuable to me because it continue. It keeps me ever growing. It keeps this podcast ever growing. Also, if you're so inclined, could you pass along the information about this podcast to your friends and family so we can continue to grow? And so next uh, episode, next chapters uh, up for review of The Black Ice would be chapters 21 through 24. 
Again, I'll talk to you later. 